Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Good morning, and welcome to Bible Center Church. I am Pastor Mike Graham, and it's so good to be here this morning with you. My role here at Bible Center is I'm in charge of discipleship and multiplication. And if you and I have not had a chance to meet, I'd like to introduce you to my family. So this is my wife, Jennifer. We've been married for 23 years. And then my daughter, Lexi, is 14 years old. And my son, Luke, is 16. Luke is waiting for the pandemic to calm down so he can go and get his driver's license. He's probably three or four inches taller than that now. He's huge. So this is my family. We've been here in West Virginia for about three years, and we love it. They go to George Washington. They've got great friends. We've had great friends. We think this is the most beautiful place we've ever lived in. We've got trails right outside of our house to go and spend time in the woods. So we are proud to be West Virginians. We've loved being in this state. Uh, So we're glad to be here with you. Pastor Matt is on vacation. And he said, Mike, can you go ahead and take care of chapters six through 12? So there's seven chapters here that we're gonna cover in the book of Exodus as we continue through this book, as we continue on this journey. And as I looked at these seven chapters, there's just a reality that we're not gonna be able to go into a lot of the details, but there's some major broad themes that we're gonna dive into and apply to our lives. At this point in the book of Exodus, God is setting up a situation where the whole world is gonna hear about his greatness. The whole world is about to hear about his power. It's as though he is rolling out the red carpet to make a clear megaphone style entrance, a true earth shattering mic drop to make everyone know that he is here and he is the only true God. God puts together a situation that you have to watch. It's like that show you've been binge watching through the pandemic. You're just glued to watch every single episode to see the characters develop, to watch the climax build, and to see how it ends. In our situation here in Exodus, we have a hard-hearted leader who the people view as a god. We have a broken and enslaved people who've been squatting in a land that is not their own for almost 400 years. We have a nervous murderer in his 80s who's called into leadership. There are signs and wonders that take place across the earth unlike anything we've ever seen before. Can you imagine if the Mississippi turned to blood or if frogs, gnats, or flies filled the United States? What if pestilence killed all of our livestock or the hail took out all of our crops or locusts came in and ate every green thing in the whole United States? Those were the types of things that were happening in Egypt. If this were to happen, it would be all you and I would talk about. We would tell other people, we'd Everyone we knew, even our children and our grandchildren, we would tell them about these amazing, humongous events. God is setting the stage to remind the world exactly who he is. There was no television. There wasn't an internet option. There was no social media. There wasn't even a newspaper back then. So God had to do something so awe-inspiring that word would spread from person to person, from family to family, from town to town, from nation to nation, and from generation to generation. The major theme of these chapters is that God, through the plagues and through the exodus, is making himself known to all peoples. So how do we know that this is God's focus here in these chapters? Am I making this up? Luckily, the Lord spends time telling us and talking through this with us that this is his main focus through this point in time in the book. 
First, he starts by telling us that he's doing something so that Moses will know who he is. In chapter six, verse one, he talks to Moses and says, now you, Moses, will see what I will do. Moses gets a front row seat. He goes on and says he's gonna do the same thing for the Egyptians. In chapter seven, verse five, it says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. For the Pharaoh, and even for all of the earth, he continues to say, for this reason, I have allowed you, Pharaoh, to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So God is displaying who he is to Moses, to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, to all the earth. And then in chapter 10, verse two, it says the plagues and signs are being performed that you, Israel, may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord so that Israel and all the generations thereafter would know that he is the Lord. And this will function as our outline for our sermons. Let's start by talking a little bit more about Moses. God rolls out the red carpet to make himself known to Moses. Again, in chapter six, verse one, it says, now you, Moses, will see what I will do. God goes on to reveal himself in a deeper way and a wider way. What I mean by that is God reveals more about who he is to Moses and to Israel, and then he makes himself known in a wider way. More people find out who he is. As he's talking to Moses in chapter six, verses two and three, he says this, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, or the name Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. So these are some really interesting verses here. He says, I've made myself known as God Almighty or as El Shaddai to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that name means is that he is God Almighty, God All-Powerful. So he's displayed his power to the early patriarchs of Israel. But to Moses, he's transitioning to give us more of an intimate knowledge of who he is. The name Yahweh speaks to God being a covenant-keeping God. When I say covenant-keeping, it means God has made a contract, an agreement, an established commitment between him and Israel. And God is saying, I am your God. I will fulfill my promises. Uh, it is said that this name speaks to God's relational nature. So before he showed how powerful he was, now he's showing that he's also a personal God and his relationship with his people matters to God. He is connected to his people. A man named Douglas Stewart has this great quote. It says that this name invites the hearer to say, I have a connection to him. I know him personally. He is not just any God, he is mine. So the name Yahweh produces this concept, this idea of deep personal connection with the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God continues to reveal himself more and more through his names. We actually have a 20-page study on the names of God in our God Almighty core class. You can find this online. If you go to our website and click on Next Steps, click on Take a Core Class, you could find this and download the materials and do a whole summer's worth of studying the names of God. God uses his names to reveal himself. In chapter six, God goes a little bit more in depth with Moses about what he's going to do and therefore how they will know him better. 
Here are some of the things that he says to Moses in chapter six. God tells Moses that he will establish his covenant with his people. He has heard all of their groanings. God has remembered his covenant promises. He has not forgotten. He tells Moses that he will bring them out of Egypt. God will deliver them and God will redeem them. The word redeem means pulling out of slavery and setting them free. God says that he will take them, the Israelites, to be his very own people. And he says, I will be their God. There you see that intimate connection between the Lord and his people and the people and their Lord. He says that he will bring them to the promised land and give it to them as their possession. Now, hundreds of years before, the people of God had been in the promised land, but it wasn't theirs. They were kind of just hanging out there, but it wasn't their land to possess. God says there's a day coming when it will be yours. So remember, the people of God at this point in history, they didn't have the written law. They didn't have a Bible per se. They did not have a tabernacle, a temple, or a church to attend. All they had were God's promises, promises that had been given to the people of God hundreds of years before. For close to 400 years, they have been in Egypt. And during that time, generations have come and generations have died off and they haven't really heard the voice of God or seen the hand of God in any way for many, many generations. So here in Exodus chapter six, this is a significant step that is made in God revealing himself, reminding his people who he is and revealing more of himself to Moses. God has also set the stage in history that he would reveal himself more to the Egyptians. So for the Egyptians, the plagues communicated that there's a clear reality that he is God. And he communicates that reality in two ways. First, through devastation. And secondly, through demonstration. So we're gonna work through the plagues and see how God demonstrates his power through devastation. The Egyptians were forced to observe God's power. Uh, they had to consider the fact that he was superior. Uh, they had to watch this increasingly intense number of plagues unfold into their country and onto their people. Certainly, they were amazed. Certainly, they were terrified. Through these 10 plagues, God used distinction, division, destruction, and death to reveal his great power and superiority over all things. We're gonna walk through those four things as we walk through the plagues and see how God has revealed himself to the Egyptians. The first plague is that the Nile was turned to blood. The second plague was that God filled the land, both where Israel, the Israelites were and where the Egyptians were with frogs. They were everywhere. But both of these miracles, the magicians that kind of worked for the Pharaoh, they were able to mimic these miracles. But in the third plague, God sends forth gnats, or in some translations, it says lice. And a distinction is made between God and the Egyptian magicians. Here, chapter eight, verses 18 and 19, it says this. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to the Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So those who were closest to Pharaoh, who could no longer mimic what they were seeing happen, had to acknowledge out loud to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't account for what's happening. There is something beyond us, superior to us, that's at work here. This must be the finger of God. 
The next plague is the plague of flies. Here we see division. Chapter eight, verses, verse 22 says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. So something new starts to happen in this fourth plague. Now the plagues are landing on the Egyptians and Israel is being spared. It's very clear there's something different between God's people and those who are not God's people. And then God goes on to destruction to communicate his power. Here comes pestilence, which kills all the livestock. Boils, we chose not to show any pictures of those. Hail, which takes out all the crops. Locusts, which eat every green thing. And then it ends with darkness. So the livestock has been wiped out. The crops are destroyed. Every green thing has been eaten and the people are literally sitting in darkness. And in the last plague, God shows his superiority and power even over death itself. So the firstborn in all of Egypt, animal and human, die at the power and hand of God. The presence and power of God becomes undeniable to the Egyptians. He has made himself known. He also makes himself known through demonstration. Throughout these plagues, God demonstrates that he is superior to all of the false gods of Egypt. Most believe that God was not random in the plagues that he chose, but he chose particular plagues to show that he was superior over the Egyptian gods. Back in that day, people believed in many gods and they connected gods to objects in the sky, to their calendar year, gods of the harvest, gods of the fall, gods of the winter, into things like gods of frogs and the river and different animals. So as we walk through these plagues one more time, I want to show you how God was demonstrating his superiority in many of these different plagues. The first one, again, is where the Nile turns to blood. So in this case, there's a God named Canum, who was the guardian of the Nile. There was Osiris, who was the river God. So the Nile turns to blood, and these fellas can't do a thing about it. The frogs there was a goddess of the frogs named Heket. Well, Heket couldn't stop frogs from taking over the entire land. So God was clearly superior over Heket. The gnats or the lice. This one's interesting. The God here is the God Seb. God, the God Seb, which was a false God in Egypt, was over the dust of the earth. If you remember in that fourth plague, Moses actually takes the dust of the earth and he throws it into the air and then the gnats begin. What is he doing there? He's basically demonstrating that God, Yahweh God, is control in control of the dust of the earth, not Seb. So as we continue, you see pestilence, boils, and hail. So the gods of the sky, the gods of weather, the gods of protection, medicine, and peace are all shown to be inferior to God Almighty. And then the locusts come. And when the locusts come, there's a God named Serapia. Serapia is the deity protector from locusts. So there's a God. The whole focus of this God is to protect Egypt from locusts. When Yahweh brings the locusts, they eat every green thing. So clearly, Yahweh God is superior to any God of Egypt, including the one in charge of keeping the locusts back. When darkness befalls the people of Egypt, all the sun gods are put to shame. 
And in the final plague, the death of the firstborn, the Pharaoh himself was considered the greatest of the Egyptian gods. And the Pharaoh couldn't even protect his own firstborn son when the Yahweh God of the Hebrews said, the firstborn shall die. So even the greatest of all the Egyptians' gods could not stand against God himself. So every single so-called God of Egypt is brought to rubble. They're brought to nothing. It's as though God lines up the Egyptian gods like bowling pins and rolls a strike and just knocks them clean over. No one can stand against the power of Yahweh. He alone is God of gods, Lord of lords, the only true God, and the Egyptians could not deny what they were seeing. In chapter 14, verse 25, this is a little bit later in the story. They're actually pursuing the Israelites towards the Red Sea. And the Egyptians say this, let us flee from Israel. Why? For the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. So the Egyptians are at the point where they recognize who the Lord is, his power, and they appropriately fear him. So through devastation and demonstration, God puts, Israel, God puts Egypt on notice. They are now keenly aware of the power and might of the one and only true God. God also takes the time to roll out the red carpet to clearly proclaim who he is to even Pharaoh. So Pharaoh never at any point yields to God or worships God, but he learns of his power and he learns of his might. If you know this story well, what's interesting is one of the things that are kind of like, it's a theme through here is that there is a hardness to Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it talks about Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart. And in other verses, it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So here's the question for us to answer. Who actually hardened Pharaoh's heart? Let's work through some verses. The first one is kind of an overall verse. It says in chapter six, verse one, under compulsion, the Pharaoh will let my people go, will let Israel go. So God already knows that the end result is that Pharaoh will let his people go. But God also knows that it's only under compulsion that he will do so. So God knows what will eventually happen. In chapter seven, verse three, and we're gonna kind of chart this out. So in this side is where it says the Lord has hardened his heart. On this side is where it says the Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In chapter seven, verse three, it says, God speaking, I will harden the Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So it says that God at some point in the future, not right then, but he will harden the Pharaoh's heart. In chapter seven, verse 13, it says, yet the Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. It doesn't say that the Lord does it. It just says that his heart by what he's observing becomes hardened. Another verse on this side, in chapter seven, verse 22, it says, the magicians repeated the miracles that they saw Moses do and the Pharaoh's heart from watching this becomes hardened. In chapter eight, verse 15, it says, but when the Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. The Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let's go back to this side. Chapter nine, verse 12. It says, and the Lord hardened the Pharaoh's heart. So we saw it in chapter seven, verse three, that he was going to. Here in chapter nine, verse 12, he does. And then there's multiple more verses here that talk about the Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then there's several more verses here that say the Lord hardened his heart. So let's go back to our question. So who then hardened the Pharaoh's heart? God or Pharaoh? 
Biblically, I think the answer has to be yes. So who did it, Pharaoh or God? Yes. Biblically, we see that both were involved. The Pharaoh did harden his heart according to these verses. Here, God did harden the Pharaoh's heart according to these verses. Let's look at one more kind of overarching verse. In chapter 10, verse three, it says, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, "'how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me?' Speaking to the Pharaoh. God holds the Pharaoh responsible for his own hardened heart. Philosophically, as humans, philosophically, this does not sit well with us. We want it to be yes on this side or yes on this side. But the Bible's very clear when it comes to human responsibility and God's sovereignty, it's a little out of what we, outside of what we can understand. God says, my thoughts are above your thoughts in the book of Isaiah. He goes on to say, my thoughts are not your thoughts. So what God's saying is he is distinct in the way he views things from how you and I view things. This feels like a contradiction or there's some conflict here logically. God's saying there's no conflict. He's saying, this is a thousand piece puzzle. You've got 13 pieces. If you think you figured it out, I'm the only one with a thousand pieces. I see how the whole thing goes together. So we are stuck trusting that God understands how this worked, even though you and I may not. And if you meet someone who believes that they've totally figured out human responsibility and God's sovereignty, be nervous. I think we're put in a position where we cannot truly and fully understand this from God's point of view. But biblically, we see both to be true. So my goal is to be biblical, not to win a philosophical argument, but to be true to what scripture has taught me and trust my Lord. So this man, Pharaoh, who is viewed as a God, was given a front row seat to this incredible display of God's power throughout all of these plagues, throughout all of the Exodus. God also goes on to make himself known to the whole earth. According to scripture, this isn't a new thing. So even though we're now here in the Exodus and God's going to say, I'm gonna read a verse for you in a couple moments where he says he's doing this for the sake of the whole earth. This is not a new thing. From the beginning, God's heart, God's passion has been for all nations, the whole world. So even though he's selected a specific group of people and he loves those people and he has a covenant with Israel, he's doing that so that all nations would know. He's basically making them a city on a hill that sheds light to the rest of the nations to know who God truly is. So this is a good thing to remember. So God has been silent to Israel for almost 400 years, but God has also been silent worldwide for 400 years. And even 400 years before this point, most of the world was not worshiping the true God. They were making up false gods. They were creating idols and they were worshiping those things instead of the true God. Fast forward 400 years, things have gotten worse, not better. In many ways, the plagues and the exodus was God again, rolling out that red carpet, creating an event for the world to reintroduce himself as its true creator. In chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, this is a little bit later again in the story. Moses now is basically singing a song of worship. And as he sings the song of worship, this is after the plagues, after the Exodus, he says this, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling grips them. All inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. 
The nations have been put on notice. The earth is on alert. The alarm has sounded. The God of the Hebrews, he alone is God of gods. He alone is the Lord of lords. He is the only true God. And the nations have to realize that they've been worshiping false gods. God has revealed his name and his greatness to the nations. God also takes his time to reveal himself to his own people in such a way that the ongoing generations would also know who he is. This would be an event so powerful that the one thing that you're gonna tell your son, that you're gonna tell your daughter is about the greatness of your God. This is the one thing you would talk about, how God demonstrated his power over rulers, over armies, over authorities, over false gods, over nature itself. Light, weather, and even death itself were subject to the Lord God. In the last plague, the 10th plague, the firstborn of all of Egypt dies. But the Israelites have a very different experience. As the, as the Egyptians are crying out in horror, the Israelites have been told to follow a set of instructions to save themselves from the angel of death. This is called the Passover. What happens in the Passover is for them to experience life and to avoid the death of the firstborn, they must have another die. A lamb, a lamb without blemish is to die in their place. Then they take the blood of that lamb and they put it onto their doorframe. So what's happening is instead of someone from the household dying, a lamb is dying in their place. And it's by the shedding of the blood of that lamb and putting it on the doorframe that the angel of death passes by and no one dies. Ultimately, this is pointing as a New Testament believer, this is exciting, is pointing right to the reality of Jesus and the cross. Jesus for us is the one who died in our place so we wouldn't have to. It's by the shedding of his blood that death can pass over us. The Bible's very clear. If you and I place our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are given life, spiritual life now and eternal life forever with God. So you and I, even though we deserve to die because of our sin and our distance and our rebellion from God, because of what Jesus did, like that Passover lamb thousands of years ago, death can pass over us and we're given life, life eternal. If you're sitting there right now, you and I are in the middle of a pandemic. And one of the things that have stuck out to me is that we've been thinking more about life, death and eternity, perhaps more than ever before. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you're not even sure what that means to have a relationship with God, you could start a relationship with God right now. All you have to do is talk to the Lord and say, Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross in my place. I recognize I've sinned against you and I want your forgiveness. I recognize you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord. I wanna be saved and forgiven today. If you said that prayer, all you have to do is just connect with us. If you would text that you've made a decision to this number on your screen, we have a pastor waiting to talk to you. We wanna take care of you and we wanna help you. If you just have questions, and you're not sure if you wanna make that decision, you wanna have a bigger conversation about that decision, Pastor Matt Garrison, who's our online campus pastor, would love to speak to you right now. I wouldn't even listen to the rest of this sermon. I would just go ahead and text that right now and start a conversation with Matt Garrison so he could walk you through what it means to be a Christian, to have a relationship with God. The God who's revealing who he is to the world wants to reveal himself to you. And this starts by having a relationship with him. 
So that's the first and most important thing you can do uh, now and at any point in your entire life is know where you stand with God himself. So the people of God who've just experienced this Passover event, they are called to remember the amazing things they've seen and they're called to pass it on to the next generation. God, if we had time, we could, we're not gonna have this much time, but if we went through the rest of Exodus in the book of Leviticus, God starts to put together an annual calendar for his people that includes events and celebrations and rituals. And all of these things are given to them so that they would remember the power of God. They're called to remember. In chapter 13, verses two and three, it says this. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. They're called to remember this day, every year on this day, you remember. In chapter 13, verse eight, it says, during the feast of unleavened bread, you shall tell your son on that day saying, is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, they were having this feast. So they are called to remember and to pass it on to the next generation. How would this apply to us? So not only did God roll out the red carpet to reveal himself to Moses and the Egyptians and Pharaoh and the whole earth and to the generations of Israelites. He also did that so that he would reveal himself to you. He cares about you. He wants you to know him. To Abraham, Jacob, and Esau, he made himself known as God Almighty. To Moses and to Israel, he made himself known as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. To you, and to me, God has made himself known as Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, the son of God in human flesh, the true tabernacle, the ultimate Passover lamb, the breaker of chains, the one and only person that can free you from your sins as he has conquered sin, death, and hell forever. God is always revealing more and more about himself over time. God will even allow really hard situations in difficult circumstances, broken relationships to happen so that he may reveal more of who he is to you and to me and to the watching world. Old Testament believers were called to remember and to pass it on. As New Testament believers, as those who have placed their faith in Jesus, we are given the same emphasis for our lives. We're supposed to be in rhythms of remembrance in our life where we're remembering all that Jesus has done for us and we're called to pass that on to our children but also to our neighbors and to those that we love. Think about these two things. God has given us, Jesus did this. He gave us communion, the Lord's Supper. So on that night, when he sat down with the disciples to have the Passover feast, Jesus changed the Passover to the Lord's Supper. Not only do we remember what God did for to the Egyptians with the plagues, now we focus on remembering what Jesus has done for us. Jesus says, as often as you celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, do it in remembrance of me. You and I are given something to do all the time to remember Jesus. Many churches do communion every week, so we never ever forget. We're also called to pass it on. The Great Commission, Jesus in the last words that he tells his disciples before he returns to the Father, he says, go and make disciples. How do you make disciples? by telling people who I am, baptizing those who believe and teaching them to do all that I've commanded you to do. We are called to remember and to pass it on. But I think there's a third component that's super important for us. 
We are also called to pursue God. Back then, they didn't have the Bible. They had no way of pursuing God. They simply had to be pursued by God. They had to see God to be able to understand who he was. You and I, we can run to his word to know him better. So my suggestion to you, my encouragement to you is that you pursue the Lord. One of the best things about reading the Bible is that as we read it, we see more and more of who God is. We see him revealing more and more of what he's like. It's like the curtains being pulled back a little more and a little more, and we see him for who he is. The Bible is telling us, teaching us, and demonstrating to us what God is like. One day, when we enter heaven, the Bible says that you will receive a sinless body. You will also receive an eternal body. So you have a body and a mind that will no longer sin. And you have a body that will last forever. Theologians like to speculate that perhaps we will continue to grow in our knowledge of understanding of God forever. So even though your body is eternal, even though you are now sinless, it's very clear that we won't necessarily know everything there is to know. You don't become omniscient. You don't become all-knowing like God. So it's very possible that from now through all of eternity, you and I will get to know God better and better and better. We will grow in our love for him, our joy for being in his presence. This might be a forever incredible holy journey that you and I take as God reveals more of who he is throughout all of eternity and we get to know him more and more and more forever. We are finite beings pursuing an infinite God. Most would suggest that only an infinite God can know an infinite God. So perhaps forever, you and I get to be on that journey of incredible joy, drinking in more and more of who he is. I pray that that really encourages you today. My hope is that realizing that God wants to reveal himself to you would motivate you to pursue him. Brother and sister, Christianity is not a Sunday thing. Christianity is an everyday thing. This week, tomorrow, I want you to remember his faithful presence in your life. I want you to pass on his love to others through your words and through your actions. And I want you to pursue God through his word. When you live this way, you're living out God's forever plan and you're fulfilling his forever purpose in your life. Let me pray that God would do that work in us. Father, we come before you and we're so thankful that you've rolled out the red carpet and you clearly display and reveal yourself to us in Jesus. May we respond in faith. May we respond in remembering. May we pass it on to those who don't know you and may we pursue you with all of our heart. Jesus, we love you and we're thankful for you. Uh, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.